0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life, by C.S. Lewis. Chapter 6, Bluttery, Part 2. Indeed, taking them by and large, and considering the temptations of adolescence, so privileged, so flattered, our bloods were not a bad lot. The Count was even kindly. The Parrot was nothing worse than a grave fool. Yards of face, they called him. Stopfish, whom some thought cruel, even had moral principles. In his younger days, many, I'm told, had desired him as a tart, but he had kept his virtue. Pretty, but no good to anyone. He's pie, would be the Wyvernian comment. The hardest to defend, perhaps, is Tennyson. We did not much mind his being a shoplifter, Some people thought it rather clever of him to come back from a tour of the town with more ties and socks than he had paid for. We minded more his favorite punishment for us rabble, a clip. Yet he could truly have pleaded to the authorities that it meant merely a box on the ear. He would not have added that the patient was made to stand with his left ear, temple and cheek almost, but not quite touching the jam of a doorway, and then struck with full force on the right. We also grumbled a little in secret when he got up a tournament, either explicitly or virtually compulsory, I think, in a game called Yard Cricket. Collected subscriptions and neither held the tournament nor returned the cash, but you will remember that this happened in the Marconi period, and to be a prefect is a preparation for public life. And for all of them, even Tennyson, one thing can be said, they were never drunk. I was told that their predecessors, a year before I came, were sometimes very drunk indeed in the house corridor at midday. In fact, odd as it would have sounded to an adult, I joined the house when it was in a stern mood of moral rearmament. That was the point of a series of speeches which the prefects addressed to us all in the house library during my first week. It was explained with a wealth of threatenings that we were to be pulled up, or together, or wherever decadents are pulled by moral reformers. Tennyson was very great on that occasion. He had a fine, bass voice and sang solo in the choir. I knew one of his tarts. Peace to them all. A worse fate awaited them than the most vindictive fag among us could have wished. Ypres and the Somme ate up most of them. They were happy while their good days lasted. My flogging by pimply old ullage was no unmerciful affair in itself. The real trouble was that I think I now became, thanks to Fribble, a marked man, the sort of dangerous new boy who skips clubs. At least I think that must have been the main reason why I was an object of dislike to Tennyson. There were probably others. I was big for my age, a great lout of a boy, and that sets one's seniors against one. I was also useless at games. Worst of all, there was my face. I am the kind of person who gets told And take that look off your face, too. Notice, once more, the mingled justice and injustice of our lives. No doubt, in conceit or ill-temper, I have often intended to look insolent or truculent, but on those occasions people don't appear to notice it. On the other hand, the moments at which I was told to take that look off were usually those when I intended to be most abject. Can there have been a free man somewhere among my ancestors whose expression, against my will, looked out? As I have hinted before, the fagging system is the chief medium by which the bloods, without breaking any rule, can make a junior boy's life a weariness to him. Different schools have different kinds of fagging. At some of them, individual bloods have individual fags. This is the system most often depicted in school stories. It is sometimes represented as and for all I know sometimes really is, a fruitful relation as of knight and squire, in which service on the one part is rewarded with some degree of countenance and protection on the other. But whatever its merits may be, we never experienced them at Wyvern. Fagging with us was as impersonal as the labor market in Victorian England. In that way, too, the call was a preparation for public life. All boys under a certain seniority constituted a labor pool the common property of all the Bloods. When a Blood wanted his OTC kit brushed and polished, or his boots cleaned, or his study done out, or his tea made, he shouted. We all came running, and of course the Blood gave the work to the boy he most disliked. The kit cleaning. It took hours. And then, when you had finished it, your own kit was still to do. Was the most detested Corvée. Shoe cleaning was a nuisance, not so much in itself as in its attendant circumstances. It came at an hour which was vital for a boy like me who, having won a scholarship, had been placed in a higher form and could hardly, by all his best efforts, keep up with the work. Hence the success of one's whole day in form might depend on the precious 40 minutes between breakfast and morning school, when one went over the set passages of translation with other boys in the same form. This could be done only if one escaped being fagged as a shoe-black. Not, of course, that it takes forty minutes to clean a pair of shoes. What takes the time is waiting in the queue of other fags in the boot hole to get your turn at the brushes and blacking. The whole look of that cellar, the darkness, the smell, and, for most of the year, the freezing cold, are a vivid memory. You must not, of course, suppose that in those spacious days we lacked servants. There were two official boot boys paid by the housemaster for cleaning all boots and shoes, and everyone, including us fags who had cleaned both our own shoes and the blood's shoes daily, tipped the boot boys at the end of each term for their services. For a reason which all English readers will understand, others will hear something of it in the next chapter, I am humiliated and embarrassed at having to record that as time went on, I came to dislike the fagging system. No true defender of the public schools will believe me if I say that I was tired. But I was. Dog tired. Cab horse tired. Tired, almost, like a child in a factory. Many things besides fagging contributed to it. I was big and had possibly outgrown my strength. My work in form was almost beyond me. I was having a good deal of dental trouble at the time and many nights of clamorous pain. Never except in the front-line trenches, and not always there, do I remember such aching and continuous weariness as at Wyvern. Oh, the implacable day, the horror of waking, the endless desert of hours that separated one from bedtime. And remember that, even without fagging, a school day contains hardly any leisure for a boy who does not like games. For him, To pass from the form room to the playing field is simply to exchange work in which he can take some interest for work in which he can take none, in which failure is more severely punished, and in which, worst of all, he must feign an interest. I think that this feigning, this ceaseless pretence of interest in matters to me supremely boring, was what wore me out more than anything else. If the reader will picture himself, unarmed, shut up for 13 weeks on end, night and day, in a society of fanatical golfers. Or, if he is a golfer himself, let him substitute fishermen, theosophists, bimetallists, Baconians, or German undergraduates with a taste for autobiography, who all carry revolvers and will probably shoot him if he ever seems to lose interest in their conversation. He will have an idea of my school life. Even the hardy Chaubach in Erewhon, quailed at such a destiny, for games and gallantry were the only subjects, and I cared for neither, but I must seem to care for both, for a boy goes to a public school precisely to be made a normal, sensible boy, a good mixer, to be taken out of himself, and eccentricity is severely penalized. You must not, from this, hastily conclude that most boys liked playing games any better than I did. To escape clubs was considered by dozens of boys an obvious good. Leave off clubs required the housemaster's signature, and that harmless Merovingian signature was imitable. A competent forger. I knew one member of the profession. By manufacturing and selling forged signatures could make a steady addition to his pocket money. The perpetual talk about games depended on three things. First, on the same sort of genuine, though hardly practical, enthusiasm which sends the crowds to the league football matches. Few wanted to play, but many wanted to watch, to participate vicariously in the triumphs of the call, or the house team. Secondly, this natural feeling had the vigilant backing of all the Bloods and nearly all the Masters. To be lukewarm on such matters was the supreme sin. Hence, enthusiasm had to be exaggerated where it existed and simulated where it did not. At cricket matches, minor bloods patrolled the crowd of spectators to detect and punish any slackness in the applause. It reminds one of the precautions taken when Nero sang. For of course, the whole structure of bloodery would collapse if the bloods played in the spirit of play, for their recreation. There must be audience and limelight. And this brings us to the third reason. For boys who were not yet bloods, but who had some athletic promise, games were essentially a moyen de parvenir. There was nothing recreational about clubs for them any more than for me. They went to the playing fields not as men go to the tennis club, but as stage-struck girls go to an audition. Tense and anxious, racked with dazzling hopes and sickening fears, never in peace of mind till they had won some notice which would set their feet on the first rung of the social ladder and not then at peace either, for not to advance is to fall back. The truth is that organized and compulsory games had, in my day, banished the element of play from school life almost entirely. There was no time to play, in the proper sense of the word. The rivalry was too fierce, the prizes too glittering, the hell of failure too severe. The only boy, almost, who played, but not at games, was our Irish Earl. But then he was an exception to all rules, not because of his earldom, but because he was an untamable Irishman, anarch in grain, whom no society could iron out. He smoked a pipe in his first term. He went off by night on strange expeditions to a neighboring city, not, I believe, for women, but for harmless rowdyism, low life, and adventure. He always carried a revolver. I remember it well, for he had a habit of loading one chamber only, rushing into your study and then firing off, if that is the right word, all the others at you, so that your life depended on his counting accurately. I felt at the time, and I feel still, that this, unlike the fagging, was the sort of thing no sensible boy could object to. It was done in defiance both of masters and bloods. It was wholly useless, and there was no malice in it. I liked Ballygunion. He, too, was killed in France. I do not think he ever became a blood. If he had, he wouldn't have noticed it. He cared nothing for the limelight or for social success. He passed through the call without paying it any attention. I suppose Popsy, the pretty redhead who was housemaid on the private side, might also rank as an element making for play. Popsy, when caught and carried bodily into our part of the house, I think by the Count, was all giggles and screams. She was too sensible a girl to surrender her virtue to any blood, but it was rumored that those who found her in the right time and place might induce her to give certain lessons in anatomy. Perhaps they lied. I have hardly mentioned a master yet. One master, dearly loved and reverenced, will appear in the next chapter, but other masters are hardly worth speaking of. It is difficult for parents, and more difficult perhaps for schoolmasters, to realize the unimportance of most masters in the life of a school. Of the good and evil which is done to a schoolboy, masters, in general, do little and know less. Our own housemaster must have been an upright man, for he fed us excellently. For the rest, he treated his house in a very gentlemanly, uninquisitive way. He sometimes walked round the dormitories of a night, But he always wore boots, trod heavily, and coughed at the door. He was no spy and no killjoy, honest man. Live and let live. As I grew more and more tired, both in body and mind, I came to hate Wyvern. I did not notice the real harm it was doing to me. It was gradually teaching me to be a prig. That is, an intellectual prig, or, in the bad sense, a highbrow. But that subject must wait for another chapter. At the tail end of this, I must repeat, for this is the overall impression left by Wyvern, that I was tired. Consciousness itself was becoming the supreme evil. Sleep, the prime good. To lie down. To be out of the sound of voices. To pretend and grimace and evade and slink no more. That was the object of all desire. If only there were not another morning ahead. If only sleep could last forever. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight till by turning, turning, we come round right.